Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Hello, everyone. This is Sally Ganga, one of the hosts of Getting In. Most of this show will be dedicated to answering listener questions, which is always fun for us. But first, I'll be speaking with Karen Spencer, veteran of college coach in various admission offices. But also, I believe I dug this out of my memory, a former resident advisor at Hope College in Michigan. So that yes. was from a while oh, ago. Some real unearthing. That was like 18, <laughs> 19, 20 years ago. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but I think it's highly relevant to our topic today, which is how to make a strong start in your first year in college. So yeah, welcome, Karen. And I'm eager to hear your expertise because I will confess that especially when I was at the smaller colleges, less so at University of Chicago, but like at Whittier in particular, and to a lesser degree at Reed, like you really got to know your students. And so I worried about them in their first year. I was like, is this kid really ready to make the transition? Or they're living at home with their parents? Are their parents going to give them enough freedom? Like we'd run into that occasionally. Um, so anyway, let's let's sort of dig right in. What's some of the um, advice that you have and your observations from your time in admissions and way back when in as a resident advisor? Yeah. So, I mean, coming to freshman year of college, I mean, I think could come with all sorts of feelings going to that. I mean, a little bit of like excitement, right? You get to be somebody new if you want to be, right? You can, or be yourself finally, right? I, one of the best things I always say about going to college is that none of the nonsense for the most part that happens in high school, that is what makes high school not most people's favorite four years, or at least can be challenging, um, kind of vanishes when you go to college. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but what you're wearing, who you're dating, if you're popular, all that stuff just kind of goes poof when you go to college, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of excitement kind of around the fundamental understanding of that. Um, but there's also some trepidation, right? This is the first time many students have ever lived away from home, even if you went to camp for a month, a week. Mm -hmm. The same as like for the rest of your life. Um, and so I think, you know, there can be some trepidation. Um, so I think, you know, you come to freshman year, with all sorts of feelings and big feelings and some of those manifest themselves and some don't. Um, but I think, you know, the very first thing I would always say is like go in with a positive attitude about like, get involved. This is where you are, right? Like it's, this is where you are period. Right. And whether this was your first choice school, your last choice school, um, the one your mother made you go to whatever the case may be. Right this is where you're at. So mm -hmm. let's make the most of it. Right. And so kind of going in a, with a positive attitude, um, you're going to make this work. Um, and, you know, really kind of diving in, you know, students who I find to be the most successful, especially freshman year, not to mention all the years, um, are students who really kind of join up, right? Like they join the activities, they make the most of their orientation experience. They leave their room. Um, they do all those things <laughs> that make them a part of this community because that's what you're doing. You're leaving one community and joining a different one. And if you lock yourself in your room and say, I don't really want to be here or I'm homesick all the time, which is fair. And you can be homesick. That's fine. But the best way to cure homesickness is not to sit in your room. Um, mm -hmm. Actually get out and go do other things with other people who are living the same experience you are, right? That's the beautiful part about freshmen, um, you know, mm -hmm. the experiences, you're all new, right? Mm -hmm. That's, and that's what I like about freshman dorms, you know, solely freshman dorms. Um, you know, nobody here is going to be like, oh, look at those freshmen. You're all freshmen, right? Nobody here mm -hmm. knows what you're doing. Nobody knows what the library is, right? That sense of community, I think, is why so many people will say, so many of their best friends, they found freshman year because that sense of, unity of we're all new here and we're all kind of in it together. It's kind of like being pledges or, you know, newbies in the military or whatever, right? There's, there's a bond from mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still in touch with my first year roommates, yeah. you know, like I, I can't say the same for my junior year roommates, although I am still in touch with my uh, senior year, but, and even though like, I would say they were fairly different from me. Like when I, like, I remember when I moved in, like, one of them had, like, pictures of flowers, and, like, I was, like, kind of, 
a little mod, a little punk. (laughs) And like another one was really into heavy metal and in all those superficial ways that meant that in high school, I probably wouldn't have been in their groups. Just as you said, like didn't matter. Yeah. You know, like it didn't matter at all. And I am still so fond of them. And I like have, you know, helped the the one who had older kids with college. Like, she, you know, and we'd been in touch the whole time, though. It wasn't like she reached yeah. out out of the blue. So. So, yeah, I, I think. But I do also want to reassure you, even if it's not your first year roommate. Yeah. If you get involved, just like you said, Karen, that's how you are going to meet people. I know in high school, often when I suggest activities to students, they say, well, none of my friends are in that. Right. And I'm like, well, right. you need to get over that already right. in high school. But in college, you especially need to get over that because that's how you're going to make friends. Right. It's You can't pick and choose based on your friends because you don't have any yet. But you will later. <laughs> you will if you join these activities. Yeah. Correct. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is, again, I, I've never met anybody in the history of my life who ever said, wow, I really regretted joining those activities. Like if, mm-hmm. if you don't join them for forever, right? Even if they're just a freshman year experience or first semester experience, great. Try mm-hmm. it out if you like it, right? That's, that's, you have so many more opportunities to do different things in college than you did in high school. I think that's also really the blessing of college um, that you could try new things out. And if you like them, great. If you don't, mm-hmm. that's, that's fine. Yeah. I have to say, too, I also recommend jobs. And I know that this seems counterintuitive, like students are like, I'm going to be busy. But I found that on college campuses, it was my first year. I think my job took all of like four hours a week. But I was working, I was running errands for the infirmary. And um, I guess actually it was like 10 hours a week. But like, I I wasn't even busy most of that time. But I would check into the infirmary, see if they needed anything, hang out, do my reading. And if they needed something, I'd run out and get something. But as a result, I had all these nurses, like these lovely maternal ladies going, how are you? Have you been eating? And, you know, like it was kind of like this sort of wonderful, like warm environment. And I just did a few things for them. And, you know, from there, I obviously did more like become a tour guide, et cetera. But like in that first year, already having a very low stress job provided another point of connection with the campus in a way that I really liked. Well, and again, to your point about being tour guides, I think both of us would admit that being tour guides is half the way we got to our current professions. Right. Most most admissions officers often get there from having been tour guides and not because I wasn't, you know, when I was a tour guide at Valpo, I wasn't like, oh, one day this will be my profession. I was like, Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I wanted some beer money. I was a senior. I wanted, you know, (laughs) you want to pay me $8 an hour to walk backwards in the snow and talk about a school I love to people because I'm chatty. Great. That seems like a win to me. So Mm -hmm. same thing. I wasn't looking for it to be you know, all of that. I just, you know, wanted a part-time job to earn some money and turned out that kind of led me to my future profession. Mm -hmm. So you just never know what that part-time job will, will lead you to. This is also a way of building skills. I actually worked with a student who was quite reserved and he told me that he had applied to be a tour guide because he wanted to work on that. He knew public speaking was important and I'm in touch with him on Facebook as is often the case. And I, uh, he's actually a priest now and he runs a seminary. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Right. And, and he, and I actually messaged him once, you know, after he posted about a successful orientation, if his tour guide training had been helpful and he wrote back, absolutely. It has been, he's like, it's like priests talk to people in front of people all the time. Yeah, exactly. But so even if you're not going to go into a service job though, public speaking skills are really, really important. So Yeah, look for jobs. I mean, maybe the tour guide isn't going to be the one for you, but look for jobs as well. I think that that's really helpful. And I do want to put in a a comment, too. Even if you're going to a community college, these activities are helpful. I feel like there's less involvement when students go to a community college. But if you want to transfer, the colleges are going to look for that and it'll help you hit the ground running when you do transfer to a four-year institution. So if you have time- even more important at a community college because it's not built into the fact that you're all living here together in community, um, you know, especially at most community colleges. So that's an opportunity to make what can feel kind of like I'm at home or I'm there. I'm not, it's not kind of one of the same to make that feel more community oriented for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, All right, anything else? How about like, Let's talk about roommate issues, Karen. You had some great, like, <laughs> you've had some great stories about that in the past. Not that we're going to go into all of them, but 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of students is having a roommate. Um, and not even just a roommate or roommates, and if you're putting put in a suite, um, but living in a community in a dorm, right? And so it's not just, do I like this person I'm, I'm living with? It's, I have to live in community with all these other people, right? So your roommate might be quiet, but your next door neighbors might like to party until two in the morning, right? How do you deal with that? I think this could be a real <clears throat> positive or a real stressor for mm-hmm. freshmen. Um, my sister, kind of like you, loved her freshman roommate, still contact, you know, contact each other to this day, would still consider her one of her closest friends in college. I would not say that about my freshman roommate. We will, we will leave it at that. Um, I ended up moving out actually of my freshman roommate. Um, and I was lucky that my father could afford a single, but there were even was a single on her. I mean, that there was a lot of things that had to happen for that to be possible. Um, but I will still say my freshman year, even with that experience, was still probably one of my favorite years of college. And I liked them all. But um, I think that can be something, right? You you have to learn to live in community with somebody else. And for a lot of students, they've never had to share a room with anybody. Maybe they went to camp for a week again. Maybe they have a sibling that shares a room. Um, that might be easier for you because you've already learned how to make peace with somebody who may or may not share your living space in the way you would have them do that. Um, but I think that the key thing there is to be patient. So for everything that your roommate does that you find annoying, they may find something that you do annoying. Um, you know, so maybe you think they're a slob, but they're like, why does my room have to be so neat? We're in college. Where are you, my mother? Right. So for every, you know, you know, some people may want to go to bed early. Some people go to like bed late. This is again, great people skills, right? Um, Rely on your RA, your resident assistant. That's what they're there for. You're not the only person potentially who doesn't get along with their roommate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to do at least do good faith effort to make it work and, and kind of work with that person. You know, that's hard for a lot of 18-year-olds. They've, you know, a lot of people, even adults are conflict averse. And there's six-year-olds who are conflict averse, more or less 18-year-olds who've never had to really kind of, you know, talk to another person and stand up for themselves in this way. Um, so, you know, be patient expect some bumps in the road. Um, sometimes actually rooming with someone who's not like you in some regards can be a benefit. Uh, you, you know, you're not kind of uh, bringing out the exact same thing that you bring to the table. Sometimes that can be um, a good thing. I also don't encourage people necessarily to live with their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you're good friends does not mean you are good roommates. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived with six of my very best friends in my senior year, and we were very clear um, there were four bedrooms. Who could live with whom? Even much that we all loved each other as people. Some of us we knew were like, that is not the roommate for me. I love you. I would I would go on vacation with you. I do not want to share a room with you. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's also good for freshmen to expand. I think if you want to live with your roommate or your roommate is also your friend, you may not expand your circles as often um, or in a way. Um, it, it's not saying it can't work. It's just not something I always suggest. I'd say go. If you want to go to college and you're going together, great. I'd still say try to live slightly separate lives, right? Just so you can, you'll come back together when you want to. And this also allows you to find your own path. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, Yeah, with close friends sometimes, yeah. If if they're late night and you're early morning or stuff like that, if you're a slob and they're neat, doesn't matter if you're best friends. Yes. (laughs) No, you're still going to want to kill them. Someone else. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, you also like, what about having cars on campus? It's kind of funny because a lot of students complain about that. And honestly, I lived on a campus that allowed cars, but not many people had it and we didn't really miss it. Yeah, I, we weren't allowed to have cars on campus freshman year at Balbo. And, and you'll find that policy is not uncommon at a lot, even in large state schools. I think Clemson has that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's there for a reason so that when, you get bored or lonely or you don't like your roommate today, um, you can't just flee to go home, right? Part of, I've always said, one of the advantages of, you know, the four-year college experience and going to college is not simply about the education or the diploma. It's about learning to live in community with other people mm-hmm. and, right, and, and remembering to have quarters for the laundry. I don't know if they still do that. They can probably charge their car time. We're, we're old <laughs> enough that we still yeah, have yeah. But, um you know, a lot of this, again, like I said, the learning experiences is how do you live in community with other people? How do you tell your roommate nicely you'd like to go to bed or the next door neighbors that it's two in the morning and can you turn it down? Um, and so, you know, or if you're lonely, right? And instead of saying, you know what, to get me out of this, I should go play intramurals or go join the choir or do whatever it is that you would want to do. If you just go home every time, that's 
kind of enabling the problem, right? This mm-hmm. is not helping you create community. This is not helping you build um, people around you that are making make you want to stay on campus um, if you kind of flee back home to mom and dad every time, you know, mm-hmm. or lonely, tired, homesick, whatever. Um, so I would generally advise, unless there's a really good reason to have a car on campus, and there might be, I would generally avoid it for sure, at least till the sophomore. Mm-hmm. Well, and learning how to use public transit is not a bad idea. I had a student who went off to Boston College and his mother was appalled that he couldn't have a car because she said, now I'm going to have to go pick him up every time. Notably, we live in Connecticut. So I was like, well, he could just take Amtrak. <laughs> like California it's, or something. It's, right? it's, yeah, that would, you know, it, but I'm like, he could just take the train. It's super easy. You can pick him up in Stanford. And she was like, the train. And I'm like, yeah. the train, it's a done thing. I promise you, it's a good option. And I thought... This kid of all people, this is a good thing. He's going to figure out all these other ways to do things, you know, yep. that he doesn't yep. know about. So, um, but that one, that one definitely made me laugh a little bit. I'm like, I promise the train is an option. It's a good yeah, option. Yeah, I promise it'll be fine. People do this every day. Yeah, out. Exactly. You can take it with his friends. They'll have a good time. It'll be good. Yep. Um, all right. Any, any last things? I mean, I think. Uh, I just know, again, just go in like, again, but go in with an open mind. Um go in knowing um, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Like I said, I, you know, my freshman year was had the highest highs and the lowest lows of my four years. Mm-hmm. And it's yet, it's still my favorite year. Um, if mm-hmm. I, you know, my girlfriends and I actually, last time we were all together, all said, if you had to pick your favorite year of college, which would you pick? And almost all of us picked freshman year. Some picked sophomore, um, but most of us picked freshman year. I just think like the newness of it is, is exciting, right? You again, you can kind of be whoever you want to be. You can um, mm-hmm. you weren't allow if you didn't feel like you could be yourself in high school. Now you can be, right? This is you can be whoever you want, um, and hopefully that's yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, without any of the pressure of having to conform, like there often is in high school. So um, I think look forward to that. Be prepared for some bumps. That's just going to be that. That will happen. Um, maybe of course is harder than you anticipate. Your roommate is not great. Um, it's way snowier here than you were envisioning. I'm looking at you, Velpo. Um, you know, whatever. Um, it's a little colder, um, hotter, whatever the case may be. Um, but just kind of go in with a good mindset that you're going to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yeah. And I'm just going to do a last highlight of the ability to be your authentic self is truly pretty exciting, I think. So lean into that. If there's some dorky thing that you didn't do in high school, because you thought it was too dorky. Well, embrace your inner dork. Now let, is the let time. Let that fly. Have yeah. at it. <laughs> exactly. Somebody, I promise somebody on this campus will find that charming and you will find your person that way. Exactly. Or your people, cool. a your group people. of people. I, I yeah, yeah, people. exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Karen. You're welcome. Nice to see you, Sally. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break now. But when we return, Shannon Vasconcelos and I will be answering listener questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Shannon. Welcome back, everyone. Now we're going to be answering listener questions. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Good. 
All right. And so I think everybody who's been on this show knows you because you're a pretty regular guest. You're our, <laughs> I'm you're very a, famous, Sally. You're very, very famous in the, in the, in the world of getting in. So, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, do you want to start? Since I, I think yeah. there are more admissions questions. Yep, in absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the first question comes in from Alex and Alex asks, how much does being the child of a faculty member matter in college admissions? I am a full-time professor at a very highly selective institution, and I'm wondering if and to what degree this helps in admissions. This is a tough one. Um, I mean, if you're full-time, you're tenured, right? Like you're not yeah. like adjunct, which really unfortunately has zero impact at all. Yeah. If you're full-time tenured, they do want to admit your student. They are aware that faculty are not happy <laughs> when their students are admitted. However, if your student is not competitive, it's not going to be enough to get them in at a right. highly selective school. So, if, But if your student is competitive, I would say it's actually a pretty substantial assistance because let's face it, with um, these highly selective schools, I'm assuming we're talking about an Ivy or something similar. We're talking about admit rates from like sort of five to eight, we're actually three to 8% at this point, like 50% of the students applying are competitive. So you at least, you do have to be in that group, but yeah. like getting a, a leg up among those students is actually quite a serious benefit. But if your student is not truly competitive at that higher level, it's not going to be enough. Uh, I worked at Chicago. Mm -hmm. We had to deny a faculty member's student. There was blowback. <laughs> it was it was <laughs> sure. not something we wanted to do, but the student yeah. was simply not competitive. So, yeah, so it's not going to be everything, but it is helpful for sure. Perfect. Like a tiebreaker factor, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, all right. So Todd um, yes. had a question for you that he emailed in. Um, Todd wrote, I have nine children. This already got my attention. I was like, okay, that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of college tuition. Yeah. Um, I have nine children. My oldest is starting college this fall, but it is my understanding that beginning in the near term, FAFSA or the free application for federal student aid, computed financial aid will be changing for families with multiple children in college. It is also my understanding that in general, net price calculators are not updated to reflect these changes. What do you know about the changes coming? What advice do you have for planning for families with multiple children in college at the same time? And importantly, how will the FAFSA changes affect um, CSS or College Scholarship Service Profile Schools, I assume he means, yeah. which affect my situation specifically? So that'll that's easy. You can Answer that in 30 seconds. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so a little background, what Todd is referring to here, um, and regular listeners of the show will likely know this because we've talked about this before. There are some changes that are due to be implemented on the FAFSA, beginning with the 24-25 school year. Uh, I was initially scheduled for the 23-24 school year. The Department of Education came back and said, we are not going to be able to do this in time and then got Congress to push it back a year. Currently scheduled for the 24-25 school year. Uh, among those changes, which are collectively referred to as FAFSA simplification, so kind of overall a good thing, making the FAFSA simpler, there's going to be less questions on the FAFSA, uh, should be a less intimidating process for families to complete the form. But one of the changes that is happening with the FAFSA uh, and the, the financial aid formula associated with the FAFSA is that um, they will no longer be counting the, the, the number of children you have enrolled in college at the same time, which is currently has a dramatic effect on financial aid eligibility, will not have an effect on financial aid eligibility. Currently, um, you know, if you have two, mine can't even wrap around having nine children and, and how many of those will be enrolled in college at the same time. But currently, you know, if you have two kids in college, the, when you fill out the FAFSA, they calculate an expected parent contribution, and then that contribution is split in half between the two mm -hmm. kids. So if they thought you could contribute 20000 total and you have two kids in college, sort of makes logical sense. You could contribute 10000 apiece. With the scheduled changes, 
assuming everything goes through as expected, if you are calculated to be able to contribute $20,000 total, they think you contribute $20,000 for child A and for child B, so $40,000 total. Um, obviously, this is bad news for families with multiple and children who are, are going to be enrolled in college at, at the same time. Um, what I will say is, though that federal financial aid formula is definitively changing, um, barring an act of Congress that changes it or delays it further, mm-hmm. um, colleges can do whatever they want when it comes to their own institutional aid. Mm-hmm. So while under the changes, you will not be, you may not be eligible for as much federal student aid. Federal student aid is fairly limited anyway, and you may not have qualified for a ton regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, what most sort of middle-class families are hoping for is more substantial institutional aid. And colleges can do whatever they want to calculate institutional aid, including if they want to, continuing to account for two or three or however many kids in college. Um, The FAFSA will actually continue to ask the question about how many kids you have in college. So if colleges want to incorporate it into their calculations for institutional aid, they can, but it simply will not be um, in the calculations for federal student aid. So with that in mind, Todd, it may be that nothing changes for you because the colleges your kids choose to attend will continue to um, include that calculation, um, but we just don't know yet. And Todd, I think you made a really wise um, reference to net price calculators because normally when people ask us about you know, how much financial aid they might qualify for, that's the go-to resource. Do the net price calculator on the school's website and it will calculate that aid eligibility for you. However, net price calculators are not yet accounting for that change in the FAFSA formula, and they won't until very shortly before the change happens. Um, So this will be for the 24-25 school year, the FAFSA that comes out October 2023 next year. The government, when they release a new FAFSA, they have to create all the kind of calculation tables that go along with that. That doesn't happen until maybe a few months before that FAFSA comes out. So maybe summer 2023 is the earliest a school could possibly incorporate these changes into their net price calculator. They're not required to incorporate those changes until um, actually a year after the change takes effect. So it might be a while before families will really be able to um, get a really accurate look at what these calculations will do at any individual school. So with all of that in mind, uh, I'd say, you know, in terms of planning purposes, I think Todd said his first child is going off to college this fall. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually probably enrollment decisions have already been made, but I am hoping Mm -hmm. that that child chose to enroll at a school that they could afford, assuming um, no difference in financial aid. So if, if they were going to, you know, divide expected family contribution in two between two siblings in college, you know, I hope they weren't counting on that when Todd and his family, when they made the enrollment decision for this older child. And certainly if they have a child starting college next year, I don't know how the kids are spaced. Don't make any enrollment decisions, assuming you're going to get more financial aid when you have more kids in college, because it may or may not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and Todd also referenced the CSS profile. Some colleges require this extra financial aid application. The profile form does split the parent contribution among siblings, but actually does it in a little bit of a weirder way. It's not directly in half. Um, We, again, don't know what schools that use the profile, are they going to respond to these changes in any way? Um, My guess, and I've certainly been wrong about lots of things in the past, so take this guess for what it's worth. You know, schools that use the profile already think that the FAFSA formula doesn't do a good enough job of assessing a family's financial needs. So that's why they ask for all this information, do this other calculation if a profile school kind of disagrees with that FAFSA theory uh, of not splitting between kids in college, they'll probably keep on going with the profile doing the splitting that they, they have been. So my guess would be maybe things don't change much at profile schools, whereas they might at FAFSA only schools. But 
it all remains to be seen. So unfortunately, like we, we want families to be as well prepared and arm themselves with information as possible. But this is a situation where at this point, even the schools don't know what they are going to do. We've all talked to kind of all of our contacts who are still working in financial aid offices and ask them, what's your school going to do? Are they going to split? Are they not going to split? Across the board, schools have not made decisions yet from the information we So we will certainly keep folks updated as we get new information, if we start seeing a trend of what schools are going to do, but we just don't know yet. So I would say for now, prepare, assuming that the splitting is not going to happen and you're going to have to pay your full EFC, expected family contribution for each child. Save as much as you can. Make wise enrollment decisions. Don't enroll in schools that you can't afford. Uh, and that's all we know for now. That's all you can do for now. When you're making enrollment decisions, when you're talking to schools, you can ask them what they uh, are planning to do with this change. Uh, but from what we've found so far, schools aren't sure yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just a quick question, though. With yeah. nine kids... That's reflected in the yep. EFC anyway, right? Like at least it is. Have, so at least there's <laughs> that kind of relief. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, the the way the number of kids you have kind of enters the formula, it does enter in two different ways: the size of your household and the number of kids you have in college. Mm-hmm. So it will continue to be ref, um, accounted for in the size of your household. They're not going to expect a family, you know. Two families have a $100,000 income. One has one child. One has nine children. It's accounted for that that family with nine children cannot pay as much for college because they have all sorts of other expenses associated with mm-hmm. raising those nine children. So it is accounted for in, in some way in the financial aid formula. The more dramatic effect is in the number of college. And that's what we don't know about yet. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I know it's, it's, I, I always try and help people, you know, be as prepared as possible. And it's frustrating for us here at college coach, where this is one where we just don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best, I guess. And check check back with us because you guys always give updates. Once there's some clarity, there will be updates on this show. It happens very quickly. You guys are really always on top of that. Absolutely. All right, Sally, next question for you comes in from uh, Natalie, and she asks, can you run a segment on how to fill out the education section on the Common App? Uh, My darling daughter is taking a Project Lead the Way class at the high school, and also she's taking the class at the high school, and it, it also awards her college credit for that same class. How does she list this on the Common App? The college gave her a transcript that shows the credits earned for her taking the class at the high school. Thank you. Okay. All right. So there's kind of a few different parts of this segment on how to fill out the education section. Um, we're not going to do that, but I do want to stress that the Common Application has really good instructions. Like if you look yeah. at the kind of menu band, I, I don't know what to call it, on the right-hand side of the screen, mm-hmm. they already have their questions that are frequently asked. And then you can input, you can click over there on a search, you can input questions that you can't find. So I really want to stress yeah. Uh, the other thing about the education section, though, is that that is a really good section to check with your high school counselor, because a lot of things in there, you want to make sure it matches up with what your high school counselor says. So even, for example, when I'm working with students as a counselor on that section, I say you need to talk to your high school counselor. I can help you with everything else. I can give you a little help here, but really you need to check it out with your high school counselor. Um, as far as the Project Lead the Way class at the high school that also awards her college credit, that's dual enrollment. That's what we call that. And uh, most colleges are actually going to consider that to be high school credit. Uh, or I shouldn't say most. That's not fair. I should say most private colleges. They may not give credit for it. And the fact is that if it's on your high school transcript, they don't need you don't need to list it again, right? So kind of like the bottom line thing to keep in mind is that if it's on your high school transcript, even on your high school transcript, it should indicate that it's a dual enrollment course. And then, so the colleges will have that information. And when you um, when you attend a college, you can bring the transcript there and see if you can get credit for it. Um, uh-huh. But you don't need to list it twice. So the college the, you know, the college credit section, that's for a class that's not showing up on your high school transcript. So hopefully that answers Natalie's uh, question. 
So, all right. Next finance question. This one's a little shorter. So that's good. Um, So from Jenna asked, my husband and I want our son to appreciate his education. So we were planning on having him borrow student loans rather than us footing the bill. What are the best loans for him to borrow? Yeah, so I may have some bad news for Jenna um, in that assuming the college that your son is attending um, costs more than kind of five to $7,000, he cannot, your son cannot totally cover that in student loans in his own name. The one student loan program that is out there that students can borrow entirely in their name alone, no cosigner required, no credit check required, all you have to do is complete the FAFSA, is called the Direct Student Loan Program. The kind of the older name for it is the Stafford Loan Program. You might have heard of it or, or had your own Stafford loans back in the day when you went to college. Um, I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so the Stafford loans or in the student's name completely, totally the student's responsibility, but they are capped at relatively small amounts. It's $5,500 for freshman year of college, um, $6,500 for sophomore, and $7,500 each year for junior and senior years of college. That is the only amount that your son can likely borrow totally in his name alone. It may cover um, you know, a community college tuition, it's not going to cover a four-year school unless he qualifies for other substantial other financial aid or scholarships. Um, so beyond that, if you need to borrow more than that, parents are having to be involved either as the primary borrower on another government loan, which exists called mm-hmm. the PLUS loan, um, or as at least a co-signer on what we would call a private education loan, a loan um, for, from a, generally a private bank. Uh, if you need more than that, fifty-five dollars to $7,500, you're looking at a plus loan in the parent's name or a loan from the private market where students, assuming they're you know, an 18-year-old kid with no or you know, part-time job and very little, if any, credit history, they're not going to be approved for a private loan on their own and need some adult and it's usually a parent to co-sign for them. Um, so, Jenna, I think you and or your husband might need to be involved somewhat in this borrowing that your son is, is going to do. You can get a private loan with him as the primary borrower and you as a co-signer. But as a co-signer, if he doesn't make payments, they come to you looking for the payment. So there's still certainly a significant level of responsibility there. Uh, and I just be careful with um, allowing your son to over borrow in private loans, um, I would keep an eye on that. You know, a, a general rule of thumb that I think sort of makes sense is you don't want to borrow any more uh, over your four years of college than you are expecting to make an income your first year out of college. So if you think you might come out making $40,000 a year, don't borrow any more than $40,000 uh, again in the student's name. Um, so I would say just sort of be careful there, Jenna. You may have to, you know, reassess your planning. I think it's wonderful to give um, a child some skin in the game, give them some responsibility. Um, but how much debt you put a child into, um, you want to be careful about that. And in fact, you can't put that debt totally on your son. You would at least have to be a co-signer beyond the $27,000 total that he can borrow in the direct loans. All right, great. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then uh, we'll be back to answer more listener questions. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com 
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Shannon and I are still here to answer listener questions. And Shannon, I think it's my turn uh, to answer one, right? Yes. So we got a question from Vikram and he says, I'm having a hard time deciding whether or not to send my scores to the schools where I'm applying. We're also looking at some business schools and it's hard to know what makes for good test scores at those schools. How do we decide whether or not to send standardized test scores? So this is the question these days. Um, I gave, I was part of a webinar doing um, question and answer yesterday. And I would say there were five questions right off the bat about it. And then there were like follow-up questions. And what about this student for this school, (laughs) for this score? Unfortunately, we can't do get that specific. But in general, what you want to do is only send your scores if they are in the top 50% of the range for that school right? So you're going to need to look it up each school, school to school, unless you have like a 1550, in which case just submit it. You're totally fine. Like like even a 1500, really just go ahead and submit it. Um, But otherwise it's going to vary from the school, right? Like what, what um, Brown is going to want is going to be different from what Penn state, you you know, you're going to need to have per Penn state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, how do you look up what the average test scores are? Some colleges have published it on their website, so it's always good to look it up and see if they have that published there. Generally speaking, it'll be on like a profile of entering students, you know, uh-huh. the class of 2026, that kind of a thing. If they don't have it, though, you can look it up on College Navigator. So the website is just call. If you do a search for College Navigator, you should find it. You can plug in the name of the school and then under admissions, you can look at um, you can look up the test scores. Now, typically what they give is the mid 50% range, meaning that 25% of the scores are below and 25% are above. That to, I, I like it that way. I think it gives a nice span, but it can be confusing for students because they yeah. think, well, if I'm in the mid 50%, yeah. I'm fine, right? I mean, there are <laughs> I'm in there students. somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but the fact is that often students who are scoring below that mid 50% range, the reason they're getting in is they're in a special category, right? Maybe they're a recruited athlete. We all know that athletes can have much lower test scores, things like that. I mean, out of school, if they are a formal recruit, right? So they might be in some sort of special category. If you are not in one of those special categories, you need to take a good long look and an honest look at your scores and say, are these really in the upper 50%? And then the tough part is that it even gets more complicated, potentially depending on your major. If you want engineering, mm-hmm. your math score should probably yes. be in the top 25%, right? Um, other pieces to think about, is your transcript really strong? If you have a super mm-hmm. strong transcript without any like apparent weaknesses, then that's another reason where if you're on the fence to maybe not submit your test scores, However, if your transcript shows some weaknesses and your test scores, like maybe you got like a B in a math class and you want engineering or something like that, but your math score is really strong, then maybe that's a time to send your test scores, even if they're on the edge. So it is a little complex, but the basic rule, are you in the top 50%? If so, go ahead and please submit. Now, I will warn people, too, that this is why there's a lot of grade or test score Uh inflation going on. Because this is what we advise everybody to do. And I don't know what else to advise them. I don't want somebody to be a sacrificial lamb to keep those averages below. But you'll see that test score averages are increasing uh, because so many schools are test optional. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we we want to advise top 50%, but that's going to get higher and higher as only the people with good test scores submit them and nobody with below average test scores Mm -hmm. submits them, that average is going to creep and it's going to get more difficult as time goes on. Exactly. On the other hand, the good news I can give people is that test optional does mean test optional. I mean, we keep getting that question. Um, And like one father said to me, um, well, won't they know that my son's test score was below average if he doesn't submit? And I'm like, well, if he does submit, they will definitely know it was below average. <laughs> right. But I promise you that if you don't submit the test score, they don't have to factor it in. They will just look at his transcript. That is how it works. Now, I think there was actually research done 
that looked at students who applied test optional to schools versus those who submitted their test scores. And there was not differences in rate of admission. I think the Mm -hmm. only difference was some schools really want test scores for scholarships. So that is that have you found that to be the case, Shannon? Yeah, though, I've actually found I found that to be the case early on in the pandemic, for sure, as schools who had just gone test optional, schools who had never been test optional before, and everybody was kind of making it up as they go along Mm -hmm. and and figuring out how are they going to do both admissions review and also scholarship review. So it was more the case I found early on in the pandemic um, where a number of schools were test optional for admissions, but still required them for scholarships. I recently tried to find a school that fell into that category where test optional for admissions, but they would not consider you for scholarships without testing. I literally could not find one school that fell into that category where they were absolutely required for all scholarships. Listeners, write into us. If you you know of a school, (laughs) let me know because I would love to dig deeper into it. What does still exist at some schools where they might... uh, Submitting testing, if it is high, which is the key, if it is high, may qualify you for a higher level scholarship. That still exists at some colleges. You can see that a lot of the large state universities actually just kind of public charts. If you have this GPA, you get this scholarship. Um, And you will see if you start reviewing a bunch of those, as I have, like somebody with a 3.5 GPA and no testing gets one scholarship, but a 3.5 GPA and a 1,400 uh, on an SAT gets you a little bit more scholarship. So that phenomenon can exist if the testing is quite high. Essentially, the colleges, I think what's going on is they want to encourage the submission of testing from their highest testers, Mm -hmm. because then they can report um, what high test scores they have, and it helps them move up in the U.S. News and World Mm -hmm. Report rankings and all of that. Um, So they want to encourage submission of the testing from the very highest testers so they can kind of brag about it. But if you're not going to be in that category, um, more likely than not, you're fine um, without any testing. Again, I haven't seen it anymore that it's absolutely required across the board for any scholarships. You will normally have... um, scholarship consideration without testing. Again, at some schools, maybe you might qualify for higher with testing if it is quite high, but if it's not going to be quite high, then it's not going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I think it's my turn to ask you a question, even though we both got involved in that (laughs) last one. So, All right. So Malik asked, uh, Malik says, we've got some college savings in a 529, enough for around two years of college, but not enough to cover all four years. Do we just pay for the first couple of years in full out of the 529 and then borrow the rest? Yeah, so this is another big it depends question and different families will make different decisions here. But I'll tell you, Malik, a few things you might want to consider. Number one, 529's college savings plan where you you get a tax break for um, saving for college. You don't have to pay any taxes, tax-free, essentially, uh, account. You can Your savings will grow tax-free here. Uh, you get that tax break if you use the money for college. If you use it for anything else, you have to pay taxes on the earnings at your ordinary income tax rate plus a 10% penalty. So you do want to be quite sure that you use this money for college. Otherwise, you're getting hit with taxes and penalties. Um, that would argue for using up that money as soon as possible because God forbid you you know you don't use the 529 on that first year and then your child drops out of college um, after the first year you don't have anybody else to spend the, the money on their college and so you've got to pay the the penalty just to get your money out so that would argue for spending that 529 as soon as possible um, some folks right now, um, their 529 savings are down. If it was invested in the stock market, they might be hoping for a turnaround. They, some people are wanting to let it ride. Um, that might be a factor if you are heavily invested in the, the stock market, which you might not want to be if your child is just about to go off to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a factor to think about. Um, a couple other quick things to think about. Um, if you may qualify for the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Dig back into our archives. We've done segments on tax breaks for paying for college. If you might qualify for that tax break, the government doesn't let you double dip and get two tax breaks for the same payment. So you can't get um, the American Opportunity Credit for payments made out of a 529. 
So you might want to pay some money not out of the 529 from some other source, including student loans count, to make sure that you qualify for that tax that tax credit, which is essentially $2,500 of free money. You want to make sure you get that. Uh, and you need to pay at least $4,000 out of pocket to qualify for that tax break. Um, so that's something to think about. And also, the direct student loans that I mentioned that the students can borrow, um, they're at a very good interest rate in the student's name, um, don't have to make payments till after graduation, flexible repayment options. Essentially, those direct student loans um, are kind of the best loans you can get in the student loan market. And they have um, annual limits that I talked about, the $55 to $7,500. If you don't take the student's freshman year eligibility in a direct loan, that $5,500. You can't get it back and like add it on to the senior year loan amount. You have those limits each year. So if you are eventually going to need to borrow, you might want to be borrowing those student loans kind of all along. Hold back. Don't pay everything out of the 529. Take the student loans as uh, you're eligible for them each year uh, because they are the best kind of deal you can get in the loan market. If you didn't borrow it all, paid everything out of the 529 for the first couple of years, by the time you got to junior and senior year, you might have to borrow very heavily in a less favorable loan with a higher interest rate. Um, so you, you might want to think about is kind of spacing that 529 out, divide it evenly over the four years and take the, the direct student loans that you can get Maybe you can pay the difference out of pocket. Um, that, that's a game plan that works for a lot of people. But again, it's going to differ for every family. All right. Thank you so much, Shannon. You're so welcome. All right. And thanks also to Karen Spencer for joining us. Uh, be sure to join us next week when we'll be discussing the Apply Texas and the University of California applications. So if you're applying to any public schools in either of those states, you should definitely find this quite helpful. Also remember to rate us on iTunes. Um, it really helps other people find us, makes us very happy and um, makes us feel famous. <laughs> and you can find us every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.